dear podcast friends, welcome to Insights and Beyond, Digitalization, Sustainability and Technology. The podcast by Trelleborg Ceiling Solutions. You're in the right place if you're interested in the driving questions around topics like digitalization, electrification and sustainability. And above all, if you want to participate in a discussion with your exciting questions and comments. Experience the talks with our experts from Trelleborg and specialists from business, industry and research. So have fun with a new episode of Insights and Beyond. In 2020, everything is different somehow, especially our mobility behavior. A survey by the German Car Sharing Association showed the number of bookings at member companies fell by 50% to 80% from mid-March to mid-April. But if you think now, well, that was only due to the lockdown... No, our mobility behavior has changed permanently. Currently, 40 to 50 percent fewer passengers are using public transportation services than in the time before the corona restrictions. Individual mobility is experiencing a renaissance. All the more, it's important that it becomes sustainable. That's what I'm talking about today with Stefan von Dobschutz, Managing Director, Energy E-Mobility Solutions and Axel Weimann, General Manager at Trelleborg Ceiling Solutions. Hi, guys. Hey, hello. Okay. Hello. If someone were to give a book title about your impact on e-mobility, what would be the title of it, Axel? Yeah, I think one of the most matching titles for me personally is um, it's pretty much the same, but feels completely different. That's a good one. <laughs> so, Stefan. Pioneers of e-mobility from first attempts to Wall Street proven business models. That will be my title. So you would have to walk the talk with that title. <laughs> It's a very good one. But um, yeah, let's see how we can fill that book maybe today with our discussions already. Um, everyone is talking about e-mobility. What question would you be like to ask? Because you think it addresses an important but at the same time unnoticed problem. Stefan. Why people are so excited about e-mobility. Um, if you look at all the startups... And um, also, at the, if you look at the investment bankers and the, I mean the financial sector, um, you see a lot of so-called specs now in the United States. So why do they attract a lot of money? These business models, um, there, there should be a case behind it. And um, I think um, to look at the growth rates there, what are the underlying assumptions? How do we predict the future? I think that's something we we can focus on or, or elaborate a bit in this uh, talks. That is something I would like to be asked. Sounds like you think that this topic is a little bit overhyped. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's in a certain way it's uh, overhyped. But on the other hand, it's also realistic because if Corona has done one positive thing, I think it has accelerated the trend of e-mobility. So we are coming out stronger out of the crisis than um, we have thought maybe half a year ago. That's something which has to be proven, but that will show the future of our e-mobility, maybe. Uh, yeah, Axel, what do you think? Um, which question is important because it addresses something which is really important, but at, at the same time, very unnoticed? Yeah, I think one of the questions um, I was um, reading some, some years ago already is why are um, users and owners and drivers of e-cars Why don't they go back to combustion engines? So if you once drive an e-car, a mobility, a, a electric uh, powered car, 
why don't you change back? Um, so this is a question I think is, um, is to be looked at uh, a little bit more closer. Is that something like an experience of the author or is it really like a statistic? I think there are some statistics um, showing that um, and you see that also in the in the numbers that um, the the growing of drivers, the, the group of drivers of, of um, electric cars show that um, there is not uh, not a huge going back to a combustion engine. So this this group grows and grows because people don't go back to combustion engines. They, they um, just buy the next one and other people are convinced um, that this is a good way of being mobile in the future. Stefan, do you have the same uh, experiences? Is it really like if they once drove uh, uh, an, an EV, they won't change it anyway? Or is it more like step-by-step plug-in step <laughs> hybrid and then yeah. the masterpiece, the electric vehicle? <laughs> um, before I joined Energy, I used to work for BMW. And at that time, we could clearly see it. Once uh, we brought people to the i models, BMW i3 or i8, uh, they never got back then to a plug-in hybrid or a normal combustion any, any longer. On, on the other hand, here at Energy or as Aeon, um, we have company fleets or the employees and uh, managers are using that fleet. And uh, once they have decided to go for an electric vehicle, they, they stick to that. Now, of course, three years ago, there were only available plug-in hybrids. But now the quota of pure electric vehicles is uh, increasing sharply among the company fleet. I have to admit, it is really an experience driving an uh, electric car because I had the chance to test drive the Porsche Taycan. And I have to say, I won't change it. If I could uh, keep that car, I would keep it. But I'm pretty sure it's all about the model <laughs> itself. And just one one other cool fact and cool thing is that it's electric. Well, uh, we joined together the virtual conference of Trellebox Ceiling Solutions in July. And there we asked the audience to ask their questions. And we have some questions left. And now I'm going to try to answer the questions with your help. So let's start with our first questions of the audience. Um, the first one is, most electric vehicles that combat range uh, anxiety still appear to be priced too highly for the average consumer. How far away are we from electric vehicle adoption for the masses? And he also or she also uh, wrote high ranges of 400 kilometers and more and One other statement of the fewer was Renault shows the right way with the Zoe. <laughs> so why do the OEMs look just after the um, after the range? What do you think? Maybe I can answer this one. Uh, in July, uh, that was also one month or two months before Volkswagen uh, has just launched uh, their ID3. Of course, or admittedly, it was a bit delayed. They have planned to launch it in April, but not now. It's uh, September, and that is really a mass marketable product. Um, it's affordable in the right price range, and it has also the right range. And uh, also, if you look at other models which are currently in the market, the Opel Corsa, the Smart 4x4, and even the VW e-Golf, I would say they are affordable. They are mass marketable. On the other hand, yes, that's true that the German automotive companies went for um, more the, the SUVs uh, in the first instance, but uh, that is just one range or one customer segment that's definitely not the end game. Is that a really good measurement? I mean, 
For me, it's something like the BMI, the body mass index. Um, if I have a lot of muscles, I'm heavier than someone who hasn't got uh, a lot of muscles. So my BMI is totally fine, but it looks bad when you have a look at the um, at the numbers. So is it a, a wrong measurement to only have a look at the range numbers? What do you think? That's the most obvious thing mm -hmm. at the beginning to look at the range from a consumer perspective, but not that's not everything. You also need to look at the charging behavior. Uh, how quickly can I charge my car? And then it's a combination of both in combination with the charging infrastructure out there, and, and then you can make up your mind. But um, therefore, you need to do a bit of math, But most because uh, car, car purchase is not only a rational um, decision, it's also emotional. And people just spot the range and say, okay, that gives me peace of mind. Therefore, uh, you know, I look out for the range. Maybe that's an explanation why people focus very much on the range and not considering other factors. Yeah, and I think it's also about, um, let's say, a range which is um, critical and a range which is um, acceptable. And it seems that 300 kilometers and above is acceptable for, for mass, um, mass uh, usage. And uh, below, it was, um, it was just for, for fast starters um, in, in usage of these cars. And, and my personal experience is with uh, some years ago with a Nissan Leaf, where you had uh, 150 plus minus kilometers. It is something that you have to take into consideration if you if you go for some rides. Now with a Zoe, which is my my current car as a, as an electric car, and 300 kilometers plus minus, um, you you use it more or less as a standard car without any any seconds thought about um, using it in the morning. But um, I think the other topic for the for the German car manufacturers is that they. Are um, diversifying their their cars um, to to other brands by specific character, characteristic um, attributes and um, of course the range is um, as Stefan was telling one of the uh, most let's say um, visual um, attributes you can uh, put a price tag on uh, since um, the the maximum speed of electric cars is not very much um, in in the foreground for for deciding for for a car. And um, for electric car, so means I think the range is is right now one of the top topics, and it took a while until um, the the German car manufacturers were ready to bring um, cars in the market. Um, first of all, these were the most more more important, uh, more more expensive cars. But but now, as as Stefan was telling, uh, cheaper cars come into the market, and that's I think brings also the suppliers into the game. The knowledge of the suppliers concerning um, component optimizations is uh, is necessary to um, improve the range and also the ultra-fast um, charging capability. And both is something where even uh, Trelleborg and, and SEALs can, can play an important role. The keyword infrastructure is something we are going to discuss later because I've got a question from the audience to that uh, To that topic, but first of all, I want to ask uh, you. Maybe Stefan, it's it's a topic for you because we have a, um, a question from the audience. He or she asked, if vehicles and other equipment become increasingly electrified, what would actually happen during a power failure? Okay, um, the good thing is I'm working for for Eon, which is one of the biggest uh, distribution company in Europe, and is uh, therefore prepared for those. Um, incidents 
And uh, as you can see, uh, from time to time, even if there was a blackout two years ago in France, it affected not only France then, it spread it out to Switzerland, Italy, and also the southern part of Germany. And you have those um, incidents happen maybe every two to three years. Therefore, uh, the grid companies are prepared for those events. They need to be prepared for that. They have an infrastructure yeah, promise to deliver. Uh, therefore, e-mobility wouldn't add another complexity to that. That's number one. And number two, if in a certain local area there is a, let's call it a blackout, in today's world, we can easily route the driver to different charging locations and really tell him, okay, is it available or not? So I think by means of um, digitalization, um, we are able to manage that risk quite well. Today, but also in the future? I mean, In the future, even more. <laughs> even in the future, more. even more, because um, you have more intelligent charging points. Right now, you have a lot of charging points in the ground, which cannot be seen uh, from outside because they're not connected to any backend. In the future, that will change. Even in the private households, you have more and more intelligent wall boxes, and therefore you can steer the whole ecosystem even better. Our need for energy is really increasing. I think everyone experienced that in the um, in the time at the beginning of the year during the lockdown time because there was one thing, I think we all did it. We watched some series. We did some, let's say, Netflixing. And I uh, did some research and I found that Netflix gained 15.8 million additional users in the first quarter of the year. And What's interesting about that number is that 30 minutes of Netflixing releases as much CO2 as six, as a six kilometer drive. And then I dived in deeper <laughs> into research. Um, and I found the following. Researchers at the University of Bristol have calculated that the entire IT system accounts for about 3% of the global greenhouse gas emissions. That is equivalent to air traffic. And I thought, wow, that's a number. So how do we get our energy really green? If we need so much energy, I think we really need green energy. So how do we do it? I think uh, one of the answer is blue hydrogen, which means hydrogen should be produced by means of renewable um, energy, which is in excess. Hydrogen can be also carry today in a better way, for example, li liquid organic hydrogen carrier. And then at the point of destination, it can be reconverted into electricity again. Of course, there are certain um, assumptions on the efficiency of this um, process, but overall, it still stays green, the overall energy balance. That's one thing. The other thing is um, fostering decentralization of energy production, which means using solar panels, buffering that energy, which is a green energy, in uh, electricity, batteries, in electric batteries, and then charge it to the chargers or give that energy to the chargers, to high-power chargers or, or AC chargers. Uh, that's definitely one of the measures we can take, apart from accelerating generation of renewables itself like the wind parks or, or, or water energy. Axel, since you're uh, an e-mobility driver, you know that 
energy management is a big part of driving an electric car. There's recuperation, for example, but there's also the need to really manage the energy. How can we make green energy even more efficient, maybe um, from the perspective of uh, Trelleborg Seeding Solutions? Yeah, I think the green energy is also about um, energy consumption. So how efficient do we use the energy which is available? And uh, then it's mostly about uh, friction reduction. So what what we don't um, use up as, as friction, we don't um, need to um, um, charge. And therefore, um, it's a big challenge for, for everybody involved to um, talk about um, less weight and then also friction reduction. And um, then, of course, um, suppliers come into place who can deliver a certain knowledge in, in these fields. And um, coming back to light uh, vehicles, then, of course, a heavy battery doesn't help. Um, so that's also giving uh, a certain perspective on, on high-range uh, cars with heavy batteries. But on the other side, friction reduction is something we can... Uh, face um, and uh, or we are facing and um, developing products which um, can be used in the e-axle itself and um, seal as a sealing component which is also optimized um, to be as frictionless as possible to increase the range of the vehicles and also the thermodynamic um, um, load on, on the system. And if you think also about the ultra-fast charging um, issue, then you talk also about uh, thermal, uh, thermal management of the battery, um, which has to be um, so performant, so high performance that you can put in all these um, 150 kilowatts or even more to charge the, the car. And also here, um, you use um, seals and um, valve systems, which can handle that uh, as efficient as possible. Mm. Um, I think there are a lot of uh, systems already in the cars today, in electric cars, that, um, that do the... Yeah, the energy management itself. So you, as a driver, I don't have to do anything because the battery managing is working with my car itself. So I don't have to do anything. That is very cool. And um, speaking of those examples, I also love examples. So maybe, Stefan, you can give us an, an example for um, yeah, producing, creating green energy. Do you have an example for that? Yeah, for example, at our... Uh, in Schnellerberge Park in Duisburg, which is our um, innovation campus or the ultra-fast charging station here in Duisburg we are operating, um, we have a semi-autonomous uh, charging station here, which means there are different kind of um, ultra-fast charging station and there is a certain ceiling, like at the petrol station. And on top of that ceiling on the roof, we have installed a couple of megawatts of solar panels And we can use the sun energy and um, buffer them in a battery and then produce, by means of that, green energy, which we can then give back to the cars at a later stage whenever that energy is needed. So that's an example um, how we have created such a format, a stationary format, and we can replicate it, of course, um, also at other locations. Which brings me, to be honest, <laughs> to our next podcast question. I love that part. It's the question, solution or sci-fi? I'm going to read out a statement. I want to hear from you. Is that really a solution for a future? Is that is that true, what I'm saying? Or is it more like an idea for a sci-fi movie? Um, so here's your sentence. Solution or sci-fi? Electrical energy is more sustainable than renewable energy, for example, the solar energy. Stefan? For me, it sounds a bit like sci-fi, to be honest. 
Why? Why? Because um, electric energy is needs to be produced somehow. And uh, if you look at our energy metrics, um, we have only 30 to 35 percent renewable energy within that mix. And um, over 60 percent is still conventional, which means that energy is less attractive, written, less sustainable than the pure renewables, which is 100 percent green. I put so much effort in that uh, sentence. So hopefully, <laughs> Axel, you have another opinion about it. <laughs> no, I, 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 I need to agree. Sorry for that, Sarah. <laughs> um, mm. But I, I would, I would um, also give a vision about uh, that. What um, Stefan was was telling about that station, which is 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 living from its own energy and, and producing the energy and also giving that energy to the cars. I think. That's going to be also something where, where new house builders will see over the next years that this um, philosophy, this mindset is maybe also put into a legislative uh, framework um, to produce the energy uh, at, at your own home, uh, store that energy and use it up with your own car. And that gives us a pretty nice feeling about being independent from a lot of um, other, let's say, um, um, impacts on our life. And um, this this is something I, I see I see coming. So with a really uh, very green and and clean and lean uh, approach about um, energy consumption and generation. That sounds a little bit like sci-fi for me, but it would be perfect if we can do it. I mean, that's more like a green energy ecosystem. And that sounds very cool to me. So we have to lead a, a speed up a little bit because we're at the end of our time and at the end of our podcast. But I have got two questions left and I want to ask those questions. The first question or the uh, almost last question is, do you think fully electric vehicles will eventually dominate the consumer automotive market or are we likely to see even more alternatives to the traditional combustion engine? And I think they're talking about, yeah, as we told, gas or um, uh, hydrogen or stuff like that. These technologies come in, in parallel. Of course, if you look at the degree of maturity, the battery-driven e-mobility is mass-marketable or the most mass-marketable um, technology. And hydrogen is also on, a, on, the, on the rise. And um, you can say as a rule of thumb, the heavier the load is you want to transport, you, the more you go for hydrogen as well as the longer the distances you want to drive, you should go for hydrogen. Uh, that still applies. You can see those if you look into the heavyweight industry, um, so MIN or, or Mercedes, they're all um, investigating here with their relevant uh, R&D departments. But uh, right now, e-mobility is the most dominant technology. So short term, you will not see a change, rather a reinforcement of that technology. But uh, midterm, of course, for certain use cases, more and more hydrogen will also be prevalent. Mm. Axel, you're the man for the details. <laughs> uh, which impact has Trelleborg on the different driving technologies? Is there something where you say yeah, electrum, um, electric cars, that's something we ha really have a huge impact on it? Um, or is it just like, yeah, we can have an impact on every kind of driving technology? 
I think it's both. So um, if you think about hydrogen, um, Stefan mentioned that already. It's um, something for the, uh, it seems to be ready for heavy truck, not ready, but developed for heavy truck business, where you talk about long range um, carriers. Um, and you talk then about very, very challenging um, ceiling topics, since you talk about uh, permeation of uh, very, very small uh the smallest molecule so means there is a big issue for us to develop the right materials um of course we can we can look at hundreds of recipes uh but um, to choose the right one is a is an issue we work with that um since since a few years uh what we see in parallel is that um of course the the partners in the in the automotive industry they have developed now these um different alternatives in parallel Uh, so we will see then cars um, which are ready for for an electric powertrain, which is battery driven. Then also maybe also some some niche cars with um, hydrogen, and then also um, of course um, synthetic fuels or other um, ways of um, propelling the car. And all all of this has to be developed in the same um, development cycle, and this is a very resource um, intensive uh, development. And we see that there is a need for highly specified and competent uh, suppliers um, offering that on a on a local for local base. Also, um, we didn't talk yet about um, global uh, differentiation. So some regions are more in favor of this solution. Some other regions are going for another one. So it's a big challenge for us to um, service these customers then on a global base. But uh, with a global footprint as we have, um, it's it's a little bit easier, but it's still a challenge. So there's still room for improvement. And you're right, it's it's a topic we hadn't discussed before, but we have to come to an end, unfortunately. And I've got one question left. And this question is, are there plans in place for OEMs and infrastructure developers to support a universal electric vehicle charge connector? And I think it's also about the infrastructure with the ultra-fast charging systems. Is there anywhere And some at some times, <laughs> is there um, any time where we have those, um, yeah, this this common charge connections? Stefan, please say yes. Yes, I do say yes. <laughs> uh, also, we say probably there will still be two kind of plugs: the Shademo standard and the combined charging standard, the CCS standard. Uh, so we need to live with two standards, but that's okay. But the most important thing is that we come back from or come away go away from country-specific regulations. If, if you go, for example, to France, uh, whatever you build uh, a public charging station, you need also to establish um, an AC station with 43 kilowatt, whereas the normal standard is 22 kilowatt. This is just one example of a silly national standard. Maybe it's a bit of protectionism. But um, overall, I, what I can see in the market is that uh, local standards will be harmonized towards European standard. And that's good from a consumer perspective because that means e-mobility will become um, seamless, e-mobility will become easy, and then adoption rate will increase. Is that really a desirable future for, uh, for the customers? Because when I uh, charge my smartphone, I always think, I'm breaking down the battery that fast because I'm charging that often and that fast. Is it really like that? So is it a desirable future to have ultra-fast charging systems everywhere? So I think absolutely. So I think this will make the difference in, in making that uh, mass, mass uh, compliant since um, I, I think the vision is here as well that you drive around and um, use ultra-fast charging or fast charging at least 
in in all these places you you would be for 20 30 minutes um think about um shopping think about hairdresser and uh doctors uh you would you would leave your car in a in a charging station and you would come back and um then you have another 100 150 kilometers and uh, the visit of the gas station would be over and um this would add value to our daily life uh, and um, therefore i'm i'm convinced that um Uh, super fast charging is, um, is is the one and only right way to bring um, e-mobility to the mass. At the end of our podcast, we always do the ceiling test and we have two components which are very interesting in terms of material for uh, ceiling solutions. For example, the rubber. They uh, Rubber has got two interesting uh, components. For example, resilience. That's the capability of a material to return to its initial state after huge pressure and, of course, flexibility. So here's the ceiling test. Where do we need to become more resilient to drive e-mobility forward? And, of course, where do we have to become more flexible to drive e-mobility forward. Stefan? I think uh, where we should become more resilient is um, that we have a standard saying each charging point, whether it's at home or whether it's in, uh, installed in the public domain, should be intelligent charging point. So from a network perspective, from an energy perspective, you can see it and you can steer it. Uh, we talked about blackouts before, so it's really important to manage energy carefully, to manage the loads in the in the grid, and therefore this is something we should be really resilient. We still see as an entry uh, box still the so-called stupid box, which means it's, it doesn't communicate, and therefore that's not good from an energy perspective overall. That is my answer on the resilient side and on the flexible side. If we look at, in terms of, we say, further mechanism, so the subvention schemes, we should be more flexible and really say, okay, from half a year to another half a year, what has worked out, which scheme, and maybe we skip one scheme and then go for, for another scheme. So I think not too rigid in our um, subvention schemes, but apply more flexibility here to bring that e-mobility forward. Mm -hmm. Axel? Yeah, resilience. Um, to translate that, maybe um, there's a there's a way to to try to overcome that shock that we have now all in in watching the brochures of the car manufacturers, seeing all the different uh, styles of um, now um, uh, power plant systems. Uh, we talked about that already. To overcome that and and to accept that, and coming back to the uh, clever usage of of the right um, power plant for for um, our needs. And then to be flexible and then just to also accept some some new environmental topics uh, that's um, leading our behavior and and um, accept that as the new reality. And that um, feels like the, the title that I gave at the beginning, that pretty much the same but feels completely different, is, is then somehow true. That was a very good conclusion at the end. So nothing to add from my side, but I'm pretty sure that there are out there so many more questions about that topic. And I'm pretty sure that we will discuss those questions in another podcast episode. But for now, thank you so much for your insights and all your estimations on e-mobility in our future. And I say thanks, take care and bye-bye. Goodbye. Thank, thank you. you. It was a pleasure.
Thank you for tuning in. Hope you enjoyed this episode. If you don't want to miss anything, just subscribe to our podcast. And of course, we are happy to receive feedback from you. So we're looking forward to your ratings and comments. And of course, we still want to answer your questions. Therefore, feel free to write us at info.podcasts at trelleborg.com. Thanks a lot and see you next time. <laughs>